This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, let's bow our heads to ask the Lord's uh, presence. Oh, I'm using the wire. I'm using the lapel mic. Um, can you all hear me? Okay. All right, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, what a joy it is to be here at GYC with so many fellow believers anxious to receive your spirit, to go out and enlighten the world so that your work can be finished and Jesus can come. That's the reason for this convention. Help us, Lord, not to lose our focus. Help us to see that this is the reason why we're gathered here. As we open your word this morning, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Give us clarity of thought and give, it, give us also willingness of heart to receive what you have for us this morning. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer. Thank you that we can come boldly to the throne of the King of the universe, knowing that you incline your ear to hear us. And we know, Father, that you have heard this prayer because we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 13 and 14. Galatians 3:13 and 14. This is not in your handout, but you might want to write down the reference at the top of the handout. This is going to set the stage for what we're going to discuss. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ has redeemed us. The word redeem there means to buy back by paying a price. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now why does the law curse us? Because we're sinners. The law isn't bad, we are. So Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And how did he do that? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, how did Jesus bear the, cur the uh, curse? He bore the curse by taking our sins to the cross. So, that's his sacrifice, his death. But now, what I want you to notice is that his death had a purpose. And we find that in verse 14. That. What does that word indicate? That. He did this so that this could happen. So it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That. He did this, in other words, so that. What? The blessing of Abraham 
might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see two events connected here? Sacrifice and what else? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? It says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the what? Of the Spirit through faith. Is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit related in any way to the death of Christ? This verse makes it very, very clear. Jesus took the curse that the blessing of Abraham might come and we might receive the Spirit. Now, we want to take a look at the material. I've written out pretty much what I'm going to share with you. And I believe that this is foundational to anything else that we talk about uh, this weekend. We can't talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit without understanding what happened at the cross. Now, as we examine Scripture, we discover something very interesting. And that is that you have this pattern. And the pattern is that a sacrifice is offered and then fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice as a signal that God accepted the sacrifice. It's a pattern all throughout Scripture. And basically it's the same idea that we just read from Galatians chapter 3. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. He bore the curse that we might receive the Spirit. Now let's notice several biblical examples of this pattern of sacrifice, fire. Sacrifice, fire. The first of these is the first sacrifice that we find directly mentioned in the Bible. Now I realize that there was a sacrifice before this, which was the one where God got the lambskins to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. There's no mention of a sacrifice, but it is uh, clearly hinted at. But this is the first explicit reference. Now the Bible doesn't tell us how God showed that he accepted Abel's sacrifice. The Bible doesn't say. But the Bible does say that God had regard for Abel's sacrifice, but he did not have for Cain's. And it's interesting to read commentators about this, you know, that don't have the light of the spirit of prophecy and really don't look at the pattern of Scripture. You know, many commentators say, well, the way that God showed that he accepted Abel's sacrifice was that the smoke of Abel's sacrifice went up, whereas the smoke of, uh, of uh, Cain's sacrifice went down. Well, the fact is there was no sacrifice by Cain in the first place. Ellen White makes it clear how God showed that he accepted Abel's sacrifice. Notice Signs of the Times, February 6, 1879. She says, God had respect unto this sacrifice. And how did he show it? And fire came down from heaven and consumed it. So how did God show that he accepted Abel's sacrifice? by fire from heaven that consumed the sacrifice. The pattern I want you to see is sacrifice, fire. 
Now let's go to our second example in Scripture. This is when the sanctuary services began in the tabernacle in the wilderness. Once again, the same pattern in Leviticus 9, verses 22 to 24. This is when the sacrificial system is going to begin. And it says in Leviticus 9, verse 22, Then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering, notice, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Now notice, Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Once again, the same pattern. Sacrifices, fire, showing that God approved of the sacrifice. Now let's go to our next example. When Solomon's temple, which by the way is a misnomer because it wasn't Solomon's temple, it was the Lord's temple built by Solomon. But when the temple built by Solomon was dedicated, sacrifices were placed upon the altar. And then I want you to notice what happened. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 1. We'll come back to the one before that in a few moments. It says there, 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So once again, notice, sacrifice, fire. Also, during the period of the Hebrew monarchy, which is the same period of David Solomon, according to 1 Chronicles 21, verse 26, this is a sacrifice that was offered by David on Ornan's threshing floor. We find the same pattern all over again. It says there in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 26, And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him, how? From heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Do you see the pattern? Sacrifice, fire, God showing his approval of the sacrifice. Now also, this is true during the period of the Hebrew prophets. Let's notice one example, the example of Elijah, which I'm sure we're all acquainted with. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 38. 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 38. We're all acquainted with the story of Elijah. It says here, Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice. Do you know when this sacrifice was offered? The Bible says that it was at the hour of the evening sacrifice. 
In other words, when in the sanctuary the lamb was being sacrificed, you know, morning and evening. So there's a direct relationship between the evening sacrifice and God raining fire from heaven. So it says, Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So is there a relationship between sacrifice and the fire that comes from heaven to consume the sacrifice, according to the Scriptures? Yes. Now, where we're moving to, I'll give you the conclusion before we get there, is that after Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, in fact, 50 days after he resurrected from the dead, the Bible tells us that tongues of fire fell from heaven upon the disciples. Now the question is, what was the meaning of the tongues of fire that came from heaven? There's a direct relationship between that and this. Now what I want us to do is to look at a different symbolism. Okay, we've noticed that there's sacrifice and then God shows his approval by raining fire and consuming the sacrifice. But there is another illustration that the Bible gives, gives that teaches the same lesson. But it's different symbolism. And what I would like to do is dedicate the rest of the time to talk about this specific symbolism where God shows his approval of the sacrifice, but no longer with sacrifice and fire, but with a different metaphor, with a different symbol. For this, we want to examine the rock episodes of the Old Testament. And there are two basic rock episodes or rock passages in the Old Testament. The first of these rock episodes is found in Exodus chapter 17. And verses 1 through 6. Exodus 17 and verses 1 through 6. Now I want you to notice that the metaphor that is used here is a different metaphor. But the meaning is exactly the same. Now let's go through this passage in Exodus 17 and verses 1 through 6. It says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Is murmuring sin? So was, were the people sinning? You know, at this stage, had they seen tremendous miracles from God? I mean, they'd seen the flags in Egypt. The Red Sea had been parted. 
And, and they, they had seen bread fall from God's bakery in heaven, according to Exodus 16. And what more evidence could you have of the presence of God? But here they're complaining. So did they deserve to fall under the judgment of God? You better believe it. They deserve to fall under the judgment of God. But now something very interesting happens. Notice verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, that means, by the way, the Red Sea, with which you struck the river and go. And now notice this. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb. What's interesting here is that you have the Lord standing on the rock. In other words, you have the symbol and you have what the symbol represents together. And so the Lord says, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and now notice, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. Now, there are three key symbols in this passage that we need to interpret in order to understand what God was trying to teach. The first symbol is the rock. The second symbol is the rod. And the third symbol is the water. Now, if we can understand what each of those symbols represents, then we can put them together and get a complete picture of what God wanted to teach through this passage. So let's take a look at these symbols one by one. First of all, the rock. What does the rock represent? You already know. Let me ask you, should Israel have known, even in Old Testament times, that the rock was more than a literal rock? They should have known that. You say, how could they know it? You know, we have the New Testament where it says that Jesus was the rock that was rejected, has become the chief of the corner, and we know that the Apostle Paul said that the rock was Christ. That's New Testament. How could they know in the Old Testament? Well, because God had told him so. Notice Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. Nine times in this chapter we have this same fact underlined. Speaking about the Lord, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capital letters, which is the covenant name, Yahweh, or as we mispronounce it, Jehovah. What does it say there? He is the rock. Could Israel have known that the rock was more than a literal rock? Even in the Old Testament? Absolutely. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So the rock represents the Lord, Yahweh. Now, who was that person? 
You know, there's a lot of people who are questioning the doctrine of the Trinity these days in the Adventist church. Um, I've done a lot of study into this, and, and I just can't understand how people can question this very biblical doctrine and very much in harmony with the spirit of prophecy. But the interesting thing is, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that this person, L-O-R-D, capitalized, was none less than Jesus Christ. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 through 4. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And you say, why were they baptized into Moses? Well, because Moses was their leader and Moses is a type of Christ. Now we're baptized into Christ. So it says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same what? Spiritual food. Was the manna more than, uh, more than food? Yes, it was spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. So was this just H2O? No. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Is this referring directly to the rock episode that we read in Exodus 17? He's reviewing the history of Israel. He's saying that rock, yes, it was a literal rock, but the Lord was standing on the rock. You have the symbol and the one symbolized together there. That rock was Christ. So now we know what the rock represents. The rock represents Christ. But then we need to also look at the meaning of the rod. Because the rod is symbolic in this passage as well. What does the rod represent? Well, every time that Moses raised his rod, a judgment of God fell. Right? Every time that Moses raised his rod, there was a judgment that fell upon the Egyptians. So the rod represents God's judgment. But you'll notice that you don't only have the rod. The Bible speaks of the rod, which represents God's judgment, doing what to the rock? Striking or smiting the rock. And the rock represents whom? The rock represents Christ. Now it's interesting to notice the meaning of the word smite, or you shall strike or smite the rock. It's the Hebrew word naka. And I looked up the different translations that we find in the Old Testament for this word. It's translated to strike, to beat, to smite, to hit, to slay, to kill, to receive a blow, or to be wounded. It's used, for example, when Moses, the Bible says that Moses struck or smote the dust and lice, a judgment of lice came out of the dust. 
He smote the waters of the Nile and a judgment came upon Egypt. The waters were turned into blood. It's the same word that is used to speak about God smiting the firstborn in Egypt. So in other words, the rod represents judgment. The act of of smiting the rock represents judgment falling upon whom? Falling upon the rock. God's judgment falling upon the rock. Incidentally, it's the same word that's used in Isaiah 53. If you go with me there, Isaiah 53 and verse 4, the identical Hebrew word, and of course Isaiah 53 is a messianic prophecy. We all know that, right? Notice what we find in Isaiah 53 and verse 4. Speaking about the Messiah, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. That's the same word that is used for the rod smiting the rock. So we esteemed him what? Stricken. Smitten by whom? By God and afflicted. Did God's rod of judgment smite the Messiah? Absolutely. That's what the word means. Are you starting to catch the picture? So basically, what Exodus chapter 17 is saying is that the rod of God's judgment was going to smite or was going to fall upon the rock, was going to fall upon whom? Upon Jesus Christ. So we've interpreted two symbols so far. The first symbol is the rock. The second symbol is the rod and the smiting with the rod. But we have a third symbol in this passage which is extremely significant and it will take us a little bit longer to deal with this symbol. It's the water that comes forth from the rock when the rock is smitten. Now, what I'm saying is that the sacrifice and the fire is the same as striking the rock and the water. In other words, by the the rock giving its water, God is showing that He has accepted the striking of the rock. Just like by raining fire from heaven, God shows that He has accepted the sacrifice. Are you understanding me? In other words, it's different symbolism, but it's the same lesson. That there is a relationship between the fire and the sacrifice. There's a relationship between the rock giving the water and the striking of the rock. That's why I said there's no way we can understand what happened at Pentecost and what will happen in the end time Pentecost unless we begin by looking at the cross. Without the cross, there would be no Pentecost. And in the end time, without a vision of the cross, there will be no Holy Spirit. It's that important. Now let's talk about the water. I'm going to skip this part here, John 13 and 14. We're going to come back to that at the end. I want to go to John 7, verses 37 to 39, to interpret 
what is meant by the water. Jesus explicitly told us what is represented by the water. We don't have to guess. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. This is taking place on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, the Feast of Tabernacles lasted seven days and then God tacked on an eighth day, which was a glorious celebration. And so Jesus has gone to the Feast of Tabernacles and water was a very important feature of the Feast of Tabernacles. If you read the story in the Old Testament about what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles, on the last great day, the eighth day, when this feast was coming to an end, Jesus said some very interesting things. Notice John 7 and verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Is Jesus here stating that he's the rock? See, we read from Paul, (laughs) and we believe Paul. But this is from the lips of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, the rock, and what? And drink. And now notice verse 38. He who believes in me, he who what? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus forgive everyone's sins at the cross? There's a fundamental, there's a fundamental misconception in the Christian world, that is that all, everyone's sins were forgiven at the cross. That is not biblical. Provision for forgiveness was made at the cross. Full and complete provision. But forgiveness comes only when I personally and individually claim the provision that was made. And that's what is meant by the word believe. He who believes. It's individual, see? He who believes in me, Jesus says, as the scripture has said, now listen carefully, out of his heart will flow rivers of what? Of living water. Now, are you catching an interesting picture here? Jesus is saying, if you're thirsty, come to me and what? And drink. So when you drink, abundantly, you're full of what? You're full of water. But then when you drink and you're full of water, what is the result? He says, out of your heart will flow what? Rivers of living water. In other words, you drink from the fountain, and then you become a fountain. Are you seeing what Jesus is saying? So is there any relationship between the Holy Spirit and witnessing? See, you can't be a fountain of water unless you've drunk from the fountain yourself. Now, what event was Jesus referring to when he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And when you drink, out of your heart will flow fountains of living water. What event was Jesus talking about? Notice verse 39. But this he spoke concerning what? 
concerning the spirit. So what does the water represent? The spirit. No, the spirit, when was the spirit given? It says, but this he spoke concerning the spirit, whom those what? Ah, there it is, those what? Believing in him, a better way of saying it would be those who who trusted in him, we'll come back to that a little bit later, would what? Would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When did the water come forth from the rock? And when was that? When was the Holy Spirit poured out? He's saying, when Jesus spoke these words, the Spirit had not yet been given. Because Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. But when Jesus is glorified, which we're going to talk about in our session tomorrow, on the day of Pentecost, when he's invested as the high priest over his people, then what happens? The Holy Spirit is what? The Holy Spirit is given. So are you seeing the relationship? Is there any relationship between striking the rock and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Could there be any outpouring of the Holy Spirit without judgment upon the rock first? No. So can we receive the Holy Spirit without a vision of the cross? Absolutely not. Now notice 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. The Apostle Paul clearly says that the water represents the Spirit. He says, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to what? To drink into one Spirit. So the water represents the Holy Spirit. So when we put all the symbols together, we have a beautiful picture that emerges. The rod of God the Father's judgment smites Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross of Calvary. And because Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, the Holy Spirit is what? The Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost and those who drink now become what? Now become fountains to bless others. What is the first thing that the apostles did after they received the Holy Spirit? Preach. God gave them the gift of tongues, correct? What for? For self-edification. The Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit on the, listen, the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was not given for self-edification. It was given as power for witnessing. The self-edification had already taken place. They had already met in the upper room. They had prayed. They had studied prophecies such as never before. They had placed all of their possessions at the disposal of God's work. They had made their differences right. The Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was not poured out to prepare them to receive the Spirit, obviously, they've been prepared before. 
Do you remember when, uh, when Jesus met the disciples in the upper room after the resurrection? Jesus breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit that allowed them to get ready to receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that they could witness. Is there any relationship between the cross, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and witnessing? Ellen White says that if we have no light to impart, it's because we have no connection with the source of light. The greatest sign that that we really love Jesus and we have a relationship with Jesus is we cannot keep our mouth shut. We have to tell everybody else about it. Let me give you another illustration. This is not this is not directly a biblical illustration, although Jesus hints at it in uh, Matthew chapter five, verses fourteen through sixteen. Jesus said, "I am the light of the world." He says that in John 9, verse 5. But then he also says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, ye are the light of the world. Now, wait a minute. So is the light. Is it Jesus? Or is it us? Well, both. Let me illustrate. You go out on a clear night and you see this beautiful full moon. And if you're out in the country, I mean, it's like almost like daytime. Beautiful outside. And you look at the moon and you say, Oh my, the moon is so beautiful tonight. That's a half truth. Because the moon doesn't have any light. The light of the moon is the light of the sun. And the moon receives from the sun and then imparts to the earth. So Jesus is the sun and we are moons. In other words, when Jesus shines on us, it will be natural for us to shine on others. But the glory is not for us. Say, oh, the moon is so beautiful. God says, if it wasn't for the light of the sun on the moon, the moon would be nothing. And so it is with us. The honor and the glory belong to God. Now, before we take our break, well, maybe we better take our break, and then we'll come to the second rock episode. So let's take five minutes just to kind of relax maybe pray together and go get a drink or whatever and then we'll uh, we'll have our last session together this message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC GYC a supporting ministry of the Seventh Day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant Bible-based and Christ-centered Christians to download or purchase other resources visit us online at gycweb.org.